We continue our study in the book of Galatians. I think it can be helpful for us to think in terms of a theme, the theme of story. I mentioned this last week that I don't want to oversell or overplay this idea of the saying to a man with a hammer, everything looks like a nail. But I do see it as a possible thread that runs through what we've seen thus far. Thus far in the letter, we've seen the following stories. First of all, the first two chapters are taken up with Paul's story in which he tells his story to establish the authority and authenticity of his apostleship and his message. There's also the side story of his publicly rebuking Peter. Then in chapter 3, the first five verses, we have the Galatians story, which we might in fact rename what's wrong with this story. Because in the first five verses of chapter 3, Paul looks back and he, he asks the Galatians to look back on how it was that they had received the gospel, the message, and the consequences of receiving that message. And he does so rather than telling them, but by asking them a series of questions. And we've talked before about the place of questions in Scripture, how oftentimes they're much more powerful than sort of a declarative statement, you know, where you're saying to someone, this is the way it is. Rather, you ask them, so what, what exactly did happen? Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? After beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? Have you suffered so much for nothing, if it really was for nothing? Does God give you his Spirit and work miracles among you because you observe the law or because you believe what you heard? And in asking these questions, Paul points out how foolish the Galatians have been in listening to the men from Jerusalem who have told them that they need to keep the law and be circumcised in order to be a part of the family of God. If, in fact, the Galatians would just stop and think for a moment, they would remember and realize that they came into the family of God, that they received the Spirit of God by believing and trusting in Jesus, the crucified Messiah. And if they would think just a bit further, they would realize that they have taken a very foolish path by following these men from Jerusalem. Are you so foolish? Paul asked them. Paul is, in essence, saying, let me get this straight. You came into the family of God by the Spirit, and now you want to come into the family of God by human effort. You're already in the family of God. Why are you trying to do this again? It doesn't make sense. Are you so foolish to think this? I mentioned last week the New English Bible is rather direct. Uh, Can it be that you are so stupid? Thus we hear the harsh language in verse 1 and verse 3 which Paul refers to them as foolish. I mentioned something last week, and it's worth noting, you can tell from Galatians, Paul is responding to a situation that I would say the men from Jerusalem never talk about the Holy Spirit. They never talk about the Spirit of God. And Paul will not allow this, that the gospel and the Spirit cannot be separated. We've read this in other letters from him. First Thessalonians 1, Our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. In 1 Corinthians 2, my message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. And he asked the Galatians, after beginning with the Spirit, does God give you his Spirit? There's a strong emphasis on the place of the Spirit in the Gospel. This is something we do not hear from the men from Jerusalem. 
The second story in chapter 3 is Abraham's story, verses 6 to 9. And here Paul quotes two passages from Genesis, two incidents in the life of Abraham. The first is from Genesis 15, when God entered into covenant with Abraham. And we're told he believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. The second incident is from chapter 12 of Genesis, the first time we ever read anything about Abraham. And God said to him, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. It is the last statement that Paul quotes. All nations will be blessed through you. I think the men from Jerusalem would have preferred the first statement. I will make you into a great nation. But Paul sees it in a very different way. He sees it as indicating that God would, in fact, save us, the Gentiles, those who are not Jews. And he would do so as he had done with Abraham, that is, by faith. That is, that Abraham believed God. God had promised something and Abraham believed him. That is the way God wants us to come into his family. I also mentioned last Sunday that I think the men from Jerusalem would have preferred to have the story of Moses to the story of Abraham. But Paul knows what he is doing. Uh, I have this later in my notes, but I want to mention it. I find it fascinating that the name of Moses does not appear one time in the book of Galatians. Galatians is all about the law and and these men from Jerusalem saying you need to be circumcised, you need to observe the law. Paul does not one time mention the name of Moses. The next story we see is in verses 10 through 14. It is the story of the curse. And being under a curse is not some type of theological abstraction. The curse has a long history from Genesis 3 all the way to Malachi chapter 4. In fact, the last word in the Old Testament is curse. Looking at the story of the curse in the Old Testament, we find that it describes that it is, in fact, the personal reaction of a personal God against human sin. So in this light, what Paul writes in verse number 10, if you'll look at it, makes sense. All who rely on observing the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. If one thinks that the road of the law is the path to take, one is in fact under a curse. Because if you fail to keep one commandment, if you break one commandment, then you are due, you deserve the personal reaction of God against sin, that is a curse. The promise that was made to Abraham was not simply about the Jews. It was designed for all the nations. Abraham's family was, in fact, going to be the means by which the Messiah would come into the world and bring salvation to the rest of mankind. That's why his family's there in the first place. But something happened to the family as a result of God's plan and promise. The physical family of Abraham, the Jews, were blocking the original intention by insisting that the law was the right path, the right way to come into a right relationship with God. Paul says, no, God's promise is still good. God still intended to bless the whole world through Abraham's family. The problem was, not only was Israel the promise bearers failing, they were getting in the way of the fulfillment of this promise. Today we have two additional stories. There's a third one, which the Lord willing we'll look at next week. First of all, the story of the promise, and then the story of the law. Look, if you would, at verses 15 through 18. Brothers, let me take an example from everyday life. 
Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. The scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. What I mean is this. The law, introduced 430 years later, does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it, is, it no longer depends on a promise. But God, in his grace, gave it to Abraham through a promise. In these verses, we find the nature of a covenant, the beneficiaries of the covenant, the dating of the covenant, and the condition for inheritance. The big issue between Paul and the men from Jerusalem is this. What did God want? What was God's intention? The men from Jerusalem said, God wants you to keep the law and to be circumcised and thereby become a part of his family. Paul points to the promise made to Abraham and, say, and said, this is God's original intention. And so in verse number 15, he begins with the nature of a covenant, and therefore he establishes the principle for the rest of this passage. He says, brothers, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. But, you know, living when and where we do, this verse, I think, lacks the force that it should have. We live in a time in which contracts can be written and broken, it seems like, at will. That's how lawyers seem to make a living, is by helping people get out of what they have promised. And so what Paul writes here, I think, lacks a certain assertiveness that we should appreciate. Unless we realize that what he is speaking of refers to a will. It's the same word in Greek as covenant. A person's last will and testament can be changed while he or she is still alive. But once the person dies, that is the will. That cannot be changed. So I may write a will and add a codicil or two or a hundred and make changes left and right. But once I die, the will cannot be changed. And someone might say, my wife might say, but I know this is what Damon wanted. And the courts will say, but this is what was written. It cannot be changed. It has been firmly established by his death. Now, a human covenant that has been duly established is put into effect once a person dies. And in Hebrews, the writer tries to make the case, I think does so very well, that the death of Christ, in a sense, is in fact the event that triggers this will taking effect. Hebrews chapter 9. In the case of a will, it is necessary to prove the death of the one who made it, because a will is in force only when somebody has died. It never takes effect while the one who made it is living. And when Christ died, the will then comes into effect. The second part here in verse number 16 is the beneficiary of the will. One of the purposes of the will is to pass on some benefit, some property to a beneficiary. It's also known as an inheritance, which we'll see in verse number 18. Following the idea of the will, Paul writes that the beneficiary of the will and the covenant, in fact, Abraham and his seed. Look at verse 16. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. The scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. 
When the promise was made to Abraham, it was made to Abraham and his seed. So in a real sense, there are two beneficiaries. And while Abraham did not fully understand the promise, now that Jesus has come into the world, we understand what was promised. So Paul points out that the promises spoken were given to Abraham and to his seed, singular, not seeds, plural. Now, you may know this, you should, from the book of Genesis. Abraham had more than one son. Before Isaac was born, there was Ishmael. I think most people know that. But after Sarah died, Abraham married Keturah and had six sons by her. So we're up to eight sons at this point. And there is an indication that he may have had more sons. In Genesis 25, Abraham left everything he owned to Isaac. But while he was still living, he gave gifts to the sons of his concubines and sent them away from his son Isaac to the land of the east. Now, when Paul talks about and his seed, the guys from Jerusalem, their ears must have perked up because they're like, yes, that's Isaac. It's not Ishmael. It's not the sons of Keturah. It's not those other sons from concubines. It's to Isaac. But they say that because they want to see themselves as the recipients and the beneficiaries of the promise. Now, let's be clear. I think Paul knows that you can use seed singular to refer to more than one person, to refer to a collective. And certainly in the book of Galatians, we see that we are in Christ. He is the one person, but we are in him. But his point is that Jesus is the one to whom the promise pointed and in whom it was fulfilled. Verse 17, the date of the covenant. What I mean is this, the law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. Generally speaking, legal documents must be dated. Dates establish the precedence of one document over another. And Paul wants the Galatians, and us as well, to understand that the covenant, the will, the promise, was made well before the giving of the law. And thus, the giving of the law does not do away with the promise. Now, there are at least, I think, two problems here to consider. The first is that the law itself was a covenant. In Exodus 24, we're told, Moses then wrote down everything the Lord had said. He got up early the next morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and set up twelve stone pillars representing the twelve tribes of Israel. Then he sent young Israelite men, and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as fellowship offerings to the Lord. Moses took half of the blood and put it in bowls, and the other half he splashed against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it to the people. They responded, we will do everything the Lord has said, we will obey. Moses then took the blood, sprinkled it on the people and said, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Some of those words may sound familiar from communion. This is the new covenant in my blood. This is the blood of the covenant. So, the law was given as a covenant. So does that mean that it superseded the one that was given to Abraham? The answer is no. And Paul will deal with this later. The other problem in this verse is Paul's use of 430 years. The figure shows up in Exodus 12. Exodus 12. Now, the length of the time the Israelite people lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of the 430 years, to the very day, all the Lord's divisions left Egypt. 
So that's where we get the 430. In Genesis 15, when God established the covenant with Abraham, the Lord said to him, Know for a certain Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated for 400 years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. So there are two figures given, 430 and 400. The rabbis sought to resolve this discrepancy, if you wish, by making 430 years the time from the covenant to the exodus. And it's been argued that Paul accepted this view. Um, I actually don't, I'm not sure that that works. A solution has been presented uh, and offered by John MacArthur because he points out rightly that the time from Abraham to the Exodus is 645 years, not 430 years. But the promise that God made to Abraham, he repeated to Isaac and he repeated to Jacob. And from the last time he spoke it, when he spoke to Jacob, to the time of the Exodus, that in fact was 430 years. Well, as often as the case when we're trying to figure these things out, we may in fact miss the point that the author is trying to make. What Paul is trying to say is that the promise was way before the giving of the law. That's what Paul's trying to get across. And then verse number 18, the condition for inheritance. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on a promise, but God in his grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. The inheritance, that which was promised, depends on a promise, not on fulfilling a condition. It's not, if you do this, you will get this. The inheritance was given by grace through a promise. That we get, and that's all well and good, but what about the law? You can't forget the law. What about the law? Well, in the verses that follow, Paul gives the story of the law in verses 19 through 25. And with the wonderful story of the promise, inevitably the question comes up, not only for the Galatians, for us as well, what was the purpose of the law? If the promise is what it was all about, then what purpose did the law serve? Why did God bother to give the law? Well, to keep in with the theme of story, I would argue that the law, the story of the law, is an intervening story. It's an interlude, if you wish. In the great story of the promise, there is, in between there, the story of the law. Between the promise and its fulfillment, we have the law. It is a story in the midst of a story. But many have, re- have regarded, you know, they've read Paul and they've assumed that he regarded the law as a bad thing. That's something that needed to be swept away. If you think this, then you have completely misunderstood Paul. And think about what he writes in Romans 12 and 13 when he says, if you do this, this is the fulfilling of the law. And Paul does not sweep away the law. Verse 19, he explains, what then was the purpose of the law? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. A promise was made to Abraham that through his seed salvation would come for the nations. Who needs salvation? Why do we need salvation? Well, the law is given to show that, in fact, we are sinners. It is given to show that sin is sin. 
The word used is transgression, to transgress. To transgress means to breach or to break a law or commandment, to be in violation of a law or commandment. If there is no law, one could argue legally there is no transgression. You haven't done anything wrong. So the law is given to show that, in fact, we are sinners. Well, in some sense, we already know from Adam and Eve, the human race has just been in utter ruins. We're just in utter ruins. Um, it is the law that shows us why this is the case. Because we have transgressed. We have broken God's law. The purpose of the law is to expose the sinful nature, the sinful condition of humanity. And it is because of the law that we now say, you know what, that promise is sounding better and better every day. Because the promise that God would bless all nations through the Messiah now makes sense. Otherwise, we might think, well, I'm fine. I'm, I'm okay. Um, but the law tells us that's not the case. Paul continues in verse 19 and then 20. The law was put into effect through angels by a mediator. A mediator, however, does not represent just one party, but God is one. What does Paul mean that the law was put into effect through angels? And what does he mean by, by a mediator? When the Lord gave the law to Israel, he did it through his angels and through Moses. And in saying this, Paul is trying to make the point that the law is God's law. It is holy. It is wonderful. In no way is he trying to trivialize it. The matter of the angels as being involved is discussed elsewhere. When Stephen was on trial before the Sanhedrin, the first martyr of the church, he said in Acts 7, You who, received, who have received the law that was put into effect through angels have not obeyed it. And then in Hebrews 2, For if the message spoken by angels was binding, and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? What is this all about? We've talked about it before. In Deuteronomy 33, as Moses pronounces a final blessing on Israel before he dies, he says, this is the, well, we read, this is the blessing that Moses, the man of God, pronounced on the Israelites before his death. He said, the Lord came from Sinai and dawned over them from Seir. He shone forth from Mount Paran. He came with myriads of holy ones from the south from his mountain slopes. He came with myriads, tens of thousands of angels. And what Moses tells Israel is that when the law was given, the Lord came with tens of thousands of angels. What about Moses as the mediator? Remember, he does not mention Moses by name, but in some sense one hardly needs that because we know the story that Moses went up to Sinai, God gave him the law, and then he in turn turned around and gave it to the children of Israel. As I said, I find it fascinating his name is not mentioned in this book. But what about verse number 20? Okay, we know about the angels and Moses, but what does it mean a mediator, however, does not represent just one party, but God is one? Um, a mediator is someone who stands between two parties. It's necessary that you have more than two parties if you're going to have someone in the middle to mediate a dispute or an agreement between them. In the story of the law on Sinai, between Israel and God, we have the angels and we have Moses. In the story of Abraham, we have no angels. 
we have no Moses. It's God and Abraham. Because in the story of the promise, God is the one making the promise to Abraham. God is the one making the covenant. Abraham is a witness to it. He is a beneficiary of it. He is not party to it. He had no part in establishing the covenant or in keeping it. That was God's responsibility alone. That's why no mediator was necessary. With these differences pointed out, another question arises in verse number 21. Is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? If God gave the law and God gave the promise, but he gave the promise first, is the law opposed to the promises of God? And Paul's answer is absolutely not. He continues, For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. You see, the problem is not with the law. The problem is with the people to whom the law had been given. Since the Israelites were human beings like the rest of us, they are, they were sinful in need of redemption. And the law could not give that. The law could not provide life or redemption. If it could, then they were set. But remember, if you break one, you're under a curse. So it's just not possible. Paul said something like this at the end of chapter 2, if you look at verse 21. If righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. But obviously the law couldn't do that. So, look at verse number 22. He continues, But the scripture declares that the whole world is a prisoner of sin, so that what was promised being given through faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. When he says the scripture, I don't think he's referring to a specific passage, perhaps the Old Testament as a whole, or more specifically the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch. Because this is the Torah, and here we find a law. And the law demonstrates, brilliantly, that we are sinners, that we are prisoners of sin. However, freedom is possible through the promise given through faith in Jesus Christ. Look at verse 23. Before this faith came, we were held prisoners by the law, locked up until faith should be revealed. Sounds like a dark situation being held prisoner by the law, being locked up, being in the custody of the law. However, in verse 24, we see that it had a purpose. So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. The English Standard Version, I think, is much clearer here. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came. The King James uses the word schoolmaster. The word used comes to us in English as pedagogue. It was used to describe usually an elderly slave who was trusted. And oftentimes, the well-to-do would go down to a slave market to find such a person. And the function of this person was to be the disciplinarian of the male heirs of a given family. They generally were not teachers. You buy another slave for that. They were disciplinarians. And a child was under the authority of this slave, amazingly enough, from the age of six until he reached his late teens. The pedagogues were seen as harsh and cruel. 
You see, this way the parents don't have to spank the kids. You buy someone to do that. Okay? You don't have to correct your kids. You buy someone to do that. The function of the pedagogue was, in fact, to discipline your kids so that they would grow up to be nice, sweet, law-abiding, trustworthy people. I think the equivalent we would think of would be a governess in English society or an all pair. But usually discipline is not their function. There may be, but the, the pedagogue had one function, and that was to discipline the child to make sure that he grew up to be a good person. It was not the responsibility of the pedagogue to pour out affection on this child, to somehow make them have a sense of self-esteem. No, in fact, they were to chastise and rebuke. If the sons grew up to be ill-mannered and disrespectful, that was on the slave, that was on the pedagogue, and there were consequences. The law is like the pedagogue. It is there to point out our failures, to correct us, to say, this, what you have done is wrong. You have broken the law. And it is in verse number 25 that we find the transition from the story of the law to the story of faith. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. See, at a certain point, the pedagogue no longer had a job. He worked himself out of a job. The child grows up. The child is an adult, has reached maturity, and hopefully at this point he knows how to behave. Supervision is no longer necessary. But what does this mean now that faith has come? If you look at verse number 23, before this faith came, well, the Lord willing, next Sunday we will look at the story of faith by re-examining verses 23 and 25 and then going to verse 26 to the end of the chapter. See, as Paul writes this, he is seeking to bring the Galatians back from the brink of deserting not only the gospel that he preached, but deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ. He isn't saying that they have, in fact, deserted, but they are on the verge. They've turned away. They're starting to to desert the one who has called them. And so he chooses to correct this by telling them stories. He tells his story, the story of themselves, of the Galatians, of Abraham, of the curse, of the promise, and of the law. The story in this series of stories is that of the promise. The story of the law is an intervening, it's an interlude, if you wish, between the giving of the promise and the fulfilling of the promise. It is a story that shows there is a need for a promise to be made, and the fulfillment of that story is the Messiah. Jesus, the crucified Messiah, is the end of the story regarding the law. It's an interlude, and now we've come to the end of the story of the law. The continuing story is that of the promise. Unfortunately, the men from Jerusalem had gotten it backwards, or they'd completely forgotten about the promise. They were focusing only on the law, and to them that was the story, the continuing story. And Paul says no. In a real sense, that story has ended. Paul would later write to the Romans, Christ is the end of the law, so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. 
as we, lo- as we saw last Sunday from verse 10, a quotation from, Gen- uh, from Deuteronomy 27, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. But in Jesus, we find someone who did everything written in the law. So he was not under a curse. He was, if you wish, the one who no longer needed a pedagogue. Uh, The writer of Hebrews says something fascinating, that he learned obedience. It used to really bother me. Why did Jesus need to learn anything? Well, Jesus stands in the place of Israel, who have a pedagogue, a disciplinarian, and Jesus kept the law. However, he did, in fact, take on the curse that was on us and on Israel. There is no curse on him because he had kept the law. And so the curse is put on him and he was hung on a cross. Jesus was not under the supervision of the law any longer. No pedagogue was necessary. He, unlike everyone else in human history, reached maturity. He reached the age when he no longer needed a pedagogue. And thus the law is no longer needed. It's the end of the story of the law. Jesus, the crucified Messiah, is the continuing story of the story of the promise. That through him all nations will be blessed. And that story continues up to the present until he returns. And so through him, we will see next Sunday, look if you would at verse 26 to the end of the chapter, you are all sons. This is through Jesus. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. That is the story that the Galatians should listen to. Not the one of the law, because that story is ended. But the story of the promise, of which Jesus is both the fulfillment and the beneficiary. And since we are in Christ, we are as well. One last question before we leave today, and I asked it last week. What is your story? Dave mentioned last week after the sermon that he had heard someone on a talk radio um, they were asked, so if there is a God and after you die, you face God, what will you say to God? And the person answered something to the effect. Um, I will say I did the best I could. Well, from what we see in Scripture, that's just not going to cut. That's just not going to do. Yeah, I did the best I could. Uh, if you're a professor or a teaching assistant, if you are a student, you know that if someone doesn't do well on the test and they want a good grade and they say, well, I did the best I could. I'm sorry that that's not sufficient. It is tantamount to admitting I am under a curse because I did not do what I knew I should. And I did what I knew I should not do. Therefore, I deserve God's personal reaction to my sin. So we need to stop and think a moment in each of our lives. What is my story? As I mentioned last week, there is the human tendency, 
even when you are on the right road, the story of the promise following Abraham in faith, that somehow the wheel just keeps pulling over to the side. We're on the path of life, and yet we keep pulling toward death. And I think we need to ask ourselves, okay, I have put my faith in Christ, but if I were to say, what is your story? Well, you know, I grew up in a Christian family, uh, I go to church, I do that. Oh, is that your story? Because if that's the case, then you're under a curse. Our story must be that God made a promise to Abraham. It is fulfilled in Christ. And by trusting in Jesus, we are in Christ and we are the beneficiaries. We receive the inheritance. As I said, the Lord willing, next week we will look at the issue of faith, something I think grossly misunderstood in our generation. And then we will come to chapter 4 in which Paul explains what we need to understand. Let's pray together. Father, I think far too often we neglect the Old Testament. We see it as a rich resource for stories for children, Sunday school or bedtime, a Bible story. And we lose sight of what you are trying to do in human history, of the promise you made to Abraham, of which we are the beneficiaries in Christ. And sometimes we get the stories wrong. We make one story bigger than the other. As with the men from Jerusalem, we might think that what we do becomes more important than what you have promised. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your promise. And above all, for fulfilling that promise in your Son, Jesus Christ. May that be our story, our faith, put in him and not in ourselves. I thank you for this opportunity to gather to worship you as a congregation, as your people. May your grace and your spirit go with us as we leave this place today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.